everybody. I was invited to my son's bachelor party. Yeah, got back at uh, one o'clock this morning. I was the moderator. Uh, yeah, no, it was sweet. It was, I mean, how many dads get invited to their son's bachelor party? I mean, but I thought it was really wise because I paid for everything. So, <laughs> so um, great week. Uh, I was in North Carolina previous week uh, with uh, uh, Black Mountain Men's Retreat. It was uh, the old Lieutenant Governor Dan Forrest, and uh, he asked me to come out. And we brought um, um, Mark Ibrahim. I brought him with me. And then another fellow uh, by the name of Ali Medina. Ali uh, is Delta. Uh, if you don't know what Delta is, it's the elite forces. He recently got out. He's working for, uh, I'll just, I'll keep that quiet. But anyways, he, um, he's a convert to Christianity from uh, Islam. Yeah, and yeah. I met him through Mark, and he's a precious man. And the two of them... Uh, and I, I told Dan Forrest, Lieutenant Governor Forrest, this, I said, look, uh, you want him to speak, but these guys haven't really done much public speaking. It's going to be raw. And uh, it really was, and it was precious. And, you know, you had the Chief Justice of the North Carolina Supreme Court. You had a senator, two Congress members. Uh, it, it was kind of a, a large gathering of influential people in North Carolina. And listening to these two veterans who have seen heavy combat, uh, Ali shared his testimony that, he was born in Syria, and then when the Assad regime took over, his parents were in jeopardy of their lives, so they immigrated to Egypt. At 19, uh, he married young and left his parents in Egypt and immigrated to the United States, became a U.S. citizen. He's telling the story, and Mark and I hadn't heard it, and he begins by saying, so I got to the U.S., and then I was facing 15 years to life. <laughs> Wait, what? <laughs> we didn't talk about this. And he was in prison for about three and a half months uh, in, you know, where all the lifers are. And he's, uh, no charges are filed and he's released. He, um, his, his wife had left him at that point. Uh, there's more to the story, but I don't have time to go through it. And uh, he just starts driving a truck for a produce company because it's the only way he could get something to eat while he was working. So I thought you'd laugh at that. It, then he, he gets two more jobs uh, and then goes to community college in the evening, gets accepted to Colorado School of Mines. He goes to take Calculus two and realizes he's terrible at math. So he sees a poster on the wall for recruiting for the army, signs up. Uh, they accept him. He's going through basic training. Uh, the Green Berets come in and pull him out, say, we need you because he speaks fluent Arabic. Uh, then he gets put into Delta, he goes through Delta training, it's a 40 week class, no one ever talks about it, you don't know what they do. Uh, Navy SEALs try to get into Delta, I mean this is, this is the elite of the elite, they're the Jedi. Um, he goes through 38 of the 40 weeks and gets rolled, he's uh, not accepted, that's done. And they had had him undercover because those who went after Jessica Lynch, the, the soldier who had been raped and kidnapped, um, the, the perpetrators had changed their identity and immigrated to the U.S. and they were working in a restaurant. He went undercover as a dishwasher uh, and then the cover was blown, whole nother story in that. They send him off to Italy, uh, he and his wife and uh, their child. He had remarried, by the way, I didn't cover that, but I'm trying to get through this quickly. Um, and, and, and then they bring him back into Delta. 
And he goes, oh, so I started week 38. And they go, no, he'd be at the beginning again. <laughs> he gets through Delta and, and graduates. And then um, at one of the, the most interesting things is he said, even since I was uh, 14 years old, no, 15 years old, I'd wanted to be a United States uh, military uh, soldier. He said, because I was driving with a friend uh, in the back roads of Egypt, came around to bend and uh, a camel driver had put his camel camels in the middle of the road uh, to rest them. And when they came around, they hit one. Camel went through the car, decapitated his friend. Uh, he was trapped in the car for eight hours and he was rescued by US Marines. And he said, I, I, I wanted to wear that uniform someday. So he served the country faithfully, just recently got out. He'd been blown up by a tow missile. Um, he's got wounds everywhere. And then in the evening, we're sitting down with Congressman Madison Cawthorn talking and um, some doctor joins us. I guess he's a gastroenterologist, stomach guy. And he's talking about how he does mesh stuff and fixes people's you know, stomach issues. And uh, Mark's like, well, I got a hernia that every time I work out, it pops out. And, and I got a rib that was broken when I got ex when an explosion uh, with an IED and it's a snaggle tooth and it fused funny. And, and the guy's like, I don't even know what to do, bro. <laughs> and I'm listening to these guys just talk and I'm looking for a scar to show somebody. I like, felt like the Jaws scene where he looks at his appendix, you know, with all the, you don't know what that is. It's an old movie. Anyways, where were we? Um, but what was so precious is, uh, the, you know, these, the who's who of, of North Carolina were in tears praying for these fellas. And there's a love uh, for our military, first responders, police in this country that's still strong. And these men are all facing struggles because they're honest men. And, and we're gonna cover that today in the passage as we've been going through the Anchored series, one of my favorite Psalms, Psalm 34, which we'll get to momentarily. But it's this idea that David wrote it when he had feigned madness in front of um, uh, Abimelech, the king. And in feigning madness, he was scared. And he was responsible for the death of all the priests because he had lied to them. And um, Doag the Edomite came in and killed them all under Saul's orders. And David realized that he was responsible for the death of these priests. And at that moment when all hell broke loose and he just felt like a penny looking for change and why could God ever use me? That's where the Lord forged and fashioned um, what would be the greatest king in all of Israel. And I look at these two broken warriors and I think to myself, especially as I look out at all of you, um, David, when he was in the cave of Adullam, running for his life, those who were distressed, indebted, and discontented gathered with him in that cave. They would go on to become the mighty warriors of Israel in the greatest expanse of the kingdom. And it was a, a humble beginning, but a profound conclusion. And I, I don't believe that what we're doing here at God Speak is an exercise in futility. I, I believe that this is having results all across the country, if not the world itself. And I'm so blessed to be a part of it. And I'm so thankful to all of you. We'd had a little bit of a interesting week, um, limited in time. And we were trying as a pastoral staff to resolve uh, some, some issues. Um, we'd been invited to join all of the area churches of the Conejo uh, Pastors Fellowship they have a statement of faith of which we uh, hold to and believe. It's much like the Nicene Creed. We've never been in violation of it. We, I love this fellowship. I, I've been 21 years pastoring in this community. I've actually served 
in the Conejo Pastors Fellowship longer than any pastor remaining in the Conejo. Uh, I don't sit in leadership, um, but uh, because of my, my schedule. And in this past, I'd say, year and a half, I haven't attended any of the meetings because I almost felt like, you know, a little bit of tension that um, I didn't want to have them struggle. One of the reasons why I resigned from the city council and taking the position that I did is I knew that the council would have to censure me. They had enough on their plate. They didn't need the circus that was going to follow. And um, so, you know, right or wrong, I, I wanted to save them the heartache of that. But we still love them and pray for them and consider them brothers in Christ. They're my friends. Uh, but I was a little uh, frustrated, uh, to say the least. Um, we had been invited to participate in what they're calling Easter in the Conejo. And um, they sent us the outline of what it would be and asked us to come and be a part of it. So I read it, and it says, we'd like to show our unity as the body of Christ this year, especially with the division of the past two years. Immediately, I went, wait, division? I mean, we've never been in division over the Nicene Creed that we, uh, you know, maybe some chose to open and some chose to close. Well, one chose to open and all chose to close. Um, yeah. They went on to write, so a bunch of area churches are putting together an effort called Easter in the Conejo Valley. It will be a website where people can find out about Jesus and the closest Christ-centered churches to their home, a social media blitz and signs and yards, and on churches, the whole idea is to make the message of Easter inescapable for the people who live in our area and to draw as many to Christ as possible. Uh, here is some of the wording on the website, and this is where I got frustrated along with the two years of division line. Eastern the Conejo Valley, this initiative is made up of big group of local churches who are committed to being front-footed with the gospel of Jesus in their Easter gatherings and ongoing weekend gatherings. Jesus is our good news. While each church may have its own nuances in what we believe about social justice and politics. Yeah, tell me about it. In other areas of life, we all agree with this statement of faith about who God is and what the Bible is and what that means for our lives. Now, I have no problem promoting Christ, uh, standing in unity. We've never been in disunity. We all hold the Nicene Creed. Uh, if there's a division, it's not with us. We chose to open. Um, they chose not to. But to put Christ forward, if, if there's unity or if there's division, my thought is, where were you when we were going before the judge on contempt charges? Where were you? And, and of the pastors, there were a few that called and prayed for us and encouraged us, and there were many who didn't. Um, and so the, the four pastors got together with two of the pastors uh, that are in leadership, and we told them, we'd love to join you, but you need to take out two years of division, social justice, and politics, and we'll be a part of it. Um, I left with the understanding that we were in agreement that was going to happen, and then I received this email uh, the next day. Hi, Rob, I'm thankful for you, my brother. I worked on the wording for the Eastern the Conejo based on our conversation this week. Unfortunately, several other churches who started this effort are not okay with the changes. Uh, I also struggle with it. I believe those words address the confusion many churches and unchurched people are feeling right now. I had good conversation about this yesterday and today with blank and blank, these are two other pastors in leadership. I believe it best to leave it how it is so that the effort can continue. 
blank and blank and I also <clears throat> love to continue the conversation we started in so-and-so's office. I appreciate the reminder that Rick brought, Pastor Rick, that we are already unified in Christ. Now we have the opportunity to grow a relationship over time without Easter being a deadline. I'm excited about the future in Christ, blank. <clears throat> I wrote, the three of you are not my enemy. That being said, the ideology that is enslaving people is my enemy. I will not apologize for remaining open and cannot in good conscience join a group that would label our actions as such. We never violated a single tenet of the statement of faith. I'm more than willing to own and apologize for anything I have said that caused division of the tenets we hold to or anything I have said that attacked my fellow shepherd's character. I have mo I've had moments of verbal frustration where I'm certain I have crossed that line. That being said, an agreement was established that day in your office and without any hearing, our fellowship is dismissed by anonymous pastors. I'm at a loss to see how this, um, uh, this any other way but uh, an agenda to publicly castigate our fellowship. This is a devastating blow to unity. I would have moved heaven and earth to facilitate a meeting with these pastors, but was never given such an opportunity. I'm currently in North Carolina being blessed by hundreds of uh, other pastors who are celebrating what God speak did. I'm at the Cove, Billy Graham's place, yet in my hometown where I have faithfully participated in the Conejo Pastors Fellowship longer than any of you, the hometown I have served as mayor, I am indiscriminately dismissed without a defense. Uh, before I defied the restraining order of the county, I called the CEO of the county and the city manager of Thousand Oaks to ask them to just leave us alone. They said they could not, and I said, if you go public, so will we, and I do not want to do this. They were friends and still are, but they could do nothing. We went public and won. No churches thanked us when the last medical order by Dr. Levin leveled restraints on every sector but churches because of our efforts, including the governor's. Now we are the source of a misguided unity to publicly castigate us. I'm struggling to see this any other way. My hurt will in no way be an obstacle of pride to write off any attempt to meet in the future. I will state, however, that if you all move forward with this publicly, I too will be public in our defense. I didn't ask for this and diligently attempted to avoid this. The decision that has been made is not mine but belongs to those who implemented this public castigation. All that results publicly of this division from this point on finds its ownership in those that made this arbitrary decision. I ask you one last time, please don't do this. Love, Rob. God bless you guys. Bless you guys. Thank you. God bless you guys. You guys are crazy. <laughs> love you too. Love you too. I love you too. God bless you all. Amen. All right. Now this this <laughs> this is uh, this was sent to me by a dear friend, and it was a great article, and I want to read it to you. I'm not brave. You're just a wussy. Is the title <laughs> written by Dr. Naomi Wolf? Some people who love me advise me not to write this essay and not to use its current title. Take the high road, I was advised. Usually that's a good idea, but not in this case and not at this moment. In this essay, I need to talk about some people, mainly privileged people, 
people who could make a difference in areas where most can't, who are trying to justify their monumental world-changing cowardice at a time when we all need to be at least somewhat brave. I'm done with tolerating this quietly. For a year and a half now, it became clear that this crisis was never about the virus, but rather about a global bid to kill off our free world and to suppress all of our freedoms. Since I and many others have been quickly, excuse me, since I and many others have been publicly vocal about this danger and doing all we can to alert our community, that is to say humanity, I've been getting uh, text messages and they're all kind of similar and they gross me out and here's why. In the text, people whom I know socially or professionally, people from journalism, religion, politics, medicine, science, most of them upper middle class men in suits, say something like, Naomi, I really respect your actions right now. I totally agree with what you're saying, but of course, I can't say anything publicly because, and then she says, fill in the nonsensical craven reason in the blank. The nonsensical and craven reason that follow that follows this shameful message is typically, and then she goes through it, my boss will get mad at me, my professional peers will have a problem with my speaking up. It's never, uh, I have to pay bills, uh, I have bills to pay. Your boss will get mad at you? Oh, you who text me? Do you understand what is at stake if you continue to comply and collude with what has become a tyrannical oligopoly? Your kids will live as slaves and serfs forever. To text, insist that I am brave, but I am not brave. You're just a wussy. Don't get me wrong. Uh, She goes through the explanation of the word. But truly, in such a moment of historical level cowardice among some privileged and influential people, no other epithet, 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 that word will do. (laughs) I was initially baffled by the messages. Why would I be getting these? What do these people want? Why do they think I need their excuses? So I asked other braver people, what is this? They laughed and said, they want you to tell them that it's okay. So I'm publicly, so I'm saying publicly, this is not okay. I'm exasperated by those who stay in the shadows agreeing with this risk-taking of others who talk about their courage. I feel that this is a form of othering that dehumanizes and exploits those speaking out. It casts the people who take the risks for the well-being of others as being somehow naturally better fitted for this difficult job than is the speaker. It's a form of offloading one's own responsibility guiltlessly onto a subgroup, which is assigned the status of somehow liking the battle or somehow fitted better for combat by nature than is the speaker himself. I don't know anyone truly heroic who likes the current battle, but I think that most could not live with themselves if they walked away from doing what they know they can do to help. In a moment in which obvious rights and wrongs have not been clear since 1941, Dr. Patrick Phillips, a Canadian ER doctor who spoke out earlier against the harms of lockdowns when many fellow doctors were silent, said something like, I realize that many of my peers were silent because they were worried about their careers, but I also realize that if I didn't speak out, soon I would have no career worth saving. Dr. Jay Bhattacharya said last night on Fox when he was asked about the great Barrington signatories having been vilified, smeared, attacked, and hounded professionally for 18 months for having been right about the harms of lockdowns, something like, if I did not speak out, what was the point of my career in public health? 
Dr. Peter McCullough, who in the middle of fighting for everyone took time to text me a way to help my loved ones who had COVID, said on television something like, they can arrest me for saying this, just don't give these mRNA vaccines to your child. He was also, he also wryly commented on another time that those opposed to this message were trying to erase the professional credentials after his name one by one, but those dangers and those forms of bullying did not stop him. Last night, I interviewed Edward Dowd, an investor who is formerly a portfolio manager for BlackRock. He is warning the world about Pfizer fraud and for sure going against the principalities and powers. He is cautioning his peers and investment community that betting on Pfizer of the world is a bet against freedom forever. I asked him from where he got his personal courage and he said something like, I will keep going till we either win our freedom back or I am in a gulag. It is truly a time in history now that is hammering our heroes and heroines in the forge of crisis. And it is also a time of unprecedented cowardice when those who choose collusion when they know better are allowing their souls to shrivel in that same heat. There is no room left to equivocate. There's no room left to moon about in the middle. At this point, there is no middle. I've seen the bravest men and women of our time forced to hurtle into battle. The women leaders in this movement are certainly as courageous as men, though they get less airtime. I watched Janine Yunz of NCRA realize she had to speak up publicly against unlawful lockdowns, even though she would endure professional opposition. Leslie Manukian of HFDF early on uh, sued coercive governors and governments and she won. I followed Tiffany Justice of Moms for Liberty as she was shadowed and faced down by security guard when she insisted on accompanying her massless child into a context of school bullying and mass coercion. This intimidation did not stop her. It made her more determined to protect the kids, all of our kids. Lori Roman of the ACRU takes every single email I forward from desperate parents trying to protect a young adult daughter or son, often a soldier or a pregnant government employee or a student from forced mRNA vaccination. I saw the warrior queen Stephanie Loricchio and Amy uh, Villalea of Children's Health Defense rally thousands of moms and dads to confront their abusive governors and the cruel forced masking, forced vaccinating schools. These parents put their bodies between middle schoolers and vans that were parked in the schoolyards, vans seeking to inject minors against their parents' wishes with an experimental product that turns out to have been generated via fraud and via concealment of serious harms. But that is exactly where parents' bodies should be in such a dangerous situation for the minors. The real question is not what drives such parents to put their bodies between the vans and the kids, but rather where the heck are all the other parents? I watched Dr. Paul Alexander race into the thick of a peaceful trucker protest in Canada that was being targeted by Canadian authorities and sent uh, and send back defiant peaceful dispatches from the front. I listened as he spoke up on stage in press conferences in support of truckers' lawful rights to freedom of speech. I read his accounts when the brutal regime in Canada floated frightening rumors of an arrest warrant being issued for him in an attempt to intimidate him. He did not stop and now he is with the American truckers. I watched Dr. Martin Kuldorf and Dr. Sinepta Gupta and Jeffrey Tucker along with Dr. Bhattachari tell the truth about lockdowns early and consistently in the face of continual whirlwinds of institutional and media blowback. Dr. Harvey Risch dared to say that 
we had attained herd immunity at a time when people were being professionally ostracized for doing so. She goes on and on, but finally these heroines and heroes did not take these actions because it was fun or easy or because they, all, they were already warriors for liberty as career choices. These are not entertaining, lucrative, status-filled paths. Most such heroes and heroines and other less known peaceful warriors aligned with liberty right now would no doubt rather be back in classrooms or polishing essays on any number of other subjects or in the lab or enjoying their families free of the need to face down bullies and stand up to security guards. I'm, this goes on, but it was one of the most profound essays that deeply moved me. And I, I think to myself, this is the most critical moment in American history, if not world history. And my question to all of us is, what is liberty worth to us? I understand that these pastors are my friends and I do love them. I love them with all my heart, but I cannot participate in a gathering that would vilify a congregation of good and brave people who have faced the loss of everything to stand for their liberty. And while they enjoy their churches open on this Easter Sunday, we were open last Easter and we will be open this Easter. And so continue to pray, continue to be brave, continue to stand. There's no room for cowardice. There's no time for it. There's no middle ground. Hold the line. Your children's future and your grandchildren's future are at stake. And we must do everything in our power to stop this enslavement of humanity. I'm done with it. And, and there's nothing that's going to stop me from, and, and nor you, I know this. And I just wanted to say thank you as I read that. And God bless you guys. I forgot. This is my favorite part. Oh no, I already read that. Never mind. I liked it so much I wanted to do it again. Uh, let's open up to Psalm 34. If you don't have a Bible, these lovely folks walking down the aisle will give you one. Just raise your hand. You're welcome to keep the Bible too if you don't own one. I had an Uber driver. I was talking to him. And uh, he said, well, I, I used to go to church. And I, and I said, you got a child? He said, a little three-year-old. My son was with me and I just said, you know, I always tell my church that a man whose Bible is falling apart is a sign that their life usually isn't. And he said, yeah. I said, you need to go get a Bible. And he says, I think I have one, but I don't know where it is. I said, I'll send you one if you need one. He goes, no, no, I'll get one. And, he, and I said, there's 31 Psalms. There's 31 days in most months. Just read a Psalm a day. It's, it's wisdom. The Bible says if any man lacks wisdom, all he has to do is ask of God. And I've been reading the Psalms since I became a Christian. Uh, Psalm, excuse, Proverbs, there's 31 Proverbs. Yeah, it's been a long night. Um, yeah, there's 31 Proverbs. And I said, I've been reading the Proverbs since I became a Christian and, and God's blessed me with that. And, and I, I just love it. And I know you will too. And you're a new dad. And listen, kids don't come with instructions, um, but the Proverbs, really good place to raise kids. He said, thank you. And it was really sweet. So read your Bible, read your Bible. You'll never waste time reading the word of God. And the cool thing is, it's not propaganda. It's true. And it's life-changing. It's the only book in the world where you don't read it, it reads you. Just jumps off the pages into your heart and changes you from the inside out. I just love the word of God. So, amen. All right, well, we're going to do Psalm uh, 34. But before we stand, I wanted to share with you this psalm was written by King David. 
It's this idea that happiness of those who trust in God. It's a Psalm of David when he pretended to be insane before King Abimelech. And uh, it's, a, it's a sad commentary of, of his life because it, in his darkest moment and his weakest moment, the Bible says in our weakness, God's strength is made perfect. And, and David was broken and he was a train wreck. And that's when I look at Mark and I look at Ollie and I think of these warriors that are tired and many of them, you know, going through trauma in their life. Uh, a few that I sat with to talk in North Carolina and I won't go into detail because it's personal, but um, when you step into the fray, you're attacked on every side. Uh, the enemy doesn't just roll over and give you ground. He goes after everything you love. And I, I, I tell people everywhere I travel across the country, including all of you. People say, we're praying for you. And I tell them I've never been busier. I told Michelle, I'm 57, I'm working harder than I did when I started here in my 30s. And I've never had more peace and I can only attribute that to one thing and that's the, as the Bible says, the fervent faithful prayers of a righteous man or woman accomplish great things. And I, I just, I can't thank them enough. I said, there's, there's no reason why I should have so much peace and clarity in the midst of being so busy other than your prayers. And, and I'm, I'm so appreciative. And, and it's those, those prayers that change lives and, and sustain people. But I also know too that the enemy comes in and he rages and he, he seeks to frighten you and paralyze you with fear. And you start to understand his weaponry, which is limited. He's a liar. He preys on your emotions. You have to hold to what is true. That's why it's so critical when Jesus was tempted in the wilderness and I was thinking of going through Luke 4, Jesus responded to every one of the weapons of the enemy with the greatest weapon, counter weapon, which is the word of God. It is written, it is written, it is written. Even the enemy will use the word of God to frighten you, but it'll always be out of context. And that's why you need to study to show yourself approved. As the scripture says, a workman who need not be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. As I've been ministering to these fellows and telling them that where they hear the fear of you're gonna spend 16 years in the DC prison which is filled with fecal matter and cockroaches and rats and overwhelming, you just have to respond. The Bible says that when you're going to the court with your adversary, which is the accuser of the brethren, Satan, it says agree with your adversary. And so if he's telling you that uh, prison awaits you and blah, 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 just turn to him and say, look, I don't know what my future holds, but I know who holds that future, and that's the Lord. And if he seeks to put me in prison where God guides, he provides. I'm not going to put my hope in a circumstance. I'm going to put my hope in the living God, that wherever he places me, his grace will be sufficient. And that way, you trust in him and trust in his word, agree with the enemy. Yes, you're preying on my greatest weakness, and that's fear, which is true for many, and you you, you play that one chord in those areas of sin that easily beset us. And yet I just wanna tell you, Satan, that I'm aware of your tactics and the word of God is now a lamp unto my feet, a light unto my path. And they, they, they grasp it and they start to understand it and they find peace in the midst of it. I can't imagine going into one of the houses that they, they would go into as Delta Force and find bodies cut in half and entire human bodies skinned decapitated, how do you live with those images? How do you come back to a normal life to raise your two daughters and care for your wife of over 20 years? 
No, you're no longer a warrior. The adrenaline is gone. Your body is fading. The wounds take their toll on pains you never thought you had. And, and as you get older and more tired and you ache and the wheels start to fall off, the enemy whispers, you've given the best part of your life to something that is wasted as billions of dollars in military equipment are given up by our president on ground that you worked hard to defend. And yet, you just have to trust the Lord. He has to be the why in what you do. And so critical. And sitting to my right and your left is Dr. Judy Mikovits. I, I think of the fear that the enemies tried to level on her, taking everything from her, putting through her through a season where the greatest challenges are coming and her, her best friend, her husband passes. And yet here she is, front row, because the why and what she does is Jesus. And we never grow weary in well-doing when the why and what we do is the Lord. We get tired in the work, but never of it. And David, when he understood this, wrote Psalm 34. I know it'll minister to you as it has me. So let's stand for the reading of the word of God. <clears throat> Verse one, I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul shall make its boast in the Lord. The humble shall hear of it and be glad. Oh, magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt his name together. I sought the Lord and he heard me and delivered me from all my fears. They looked to him and were radiant and their faces were not ashamed. This poor man cried out and the Lord heard him and saved him from all his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and delivers them. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who trusts in him. Oh, fear the Lord, you his saints. There's no want to those who fear him. The young lions lack and suffer hunger, but those who seek the Lord shall not lack any good thing. Come, you children, listen to me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. Who is the man who desires life and loves many days that he may see good? Keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. Depart from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. Hmm. The eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are open to their cry. The face of the Lord is against those who do evil to cut off the remembrance of them from the earth. The righteous cry out and the Lord hears and delivers them out of all their troubles. The Lord is near to those who have a broken heart and save such as have a contrite spirit. Many are the afflictions of the righteous but the Lord delivers him out of them all. He guards all his bones, not one of them is broken. Evil shall slay the wicked, and those who hate the righteous shall be condemned. The Lord redeems the soul of his servants, and none of those who trust in him shall be condemned. Lord, we ask your blessing on the study of your word, your word which is living and breathing and sharper than any two-edged sword that divides the thoughts and the intents of our heart. Lord, your word that brings life. Lord, your word which is true. Lord, your word which spoke the heavens into existence. Lord, your word that gave us life. 
Lord, thank you. You are the word. In the beginning was the word. The word was with God. The word was God. The word became flesh and dwelt with man. God, you gave us, of all the creatures of your creation, you gave us the ability of speech to communicate justice and to stand upon truth and to contend for that which would set captives free, a voice that must be heard and cannot be muzzled and cannot be silenced except and only by fear, fear which would steal a man or a woman's courage and thus they would be discouraged without courage. And in the absence of courage, Lord, truth is but an orphan. But by your spirit, you have not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and love and a sound mind. And we boldly proclaim the truth and we're unashamed. And nor are we ashamed of the gospel for it's the power unto life for all who would believe. And so God, spirit of the living God, fill us afresh with that spirit, that spirit, that is not of fear, but is of power and love and a sound mind. Bless your people, Lord. Do what I cannot do. Encourage them. Fill them. Uplift them. Empower them to be used for your glory that others would know the truth and the truth would set them free. Let us speak without reservation or hesitation, speaking the truth in love. And God, we commit all this to you and we thank you for the sweet psalmist of Israel whose words were penned in the trials of life, written on the tablets of his human heart, that we can look at a man with feet of clay just like us and say, if he can do it, we all can. Thank you, Lord. We love you. We praise you. We ask your blessing now that you would lead us into all truth. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. Have a seat. In the early portion of David's life, Samuel was told of the Lord to go to the house of Jesse and anoint the next king of Israel because Saul had disobeyed God. And God was taking the kingdom from Saul. And Samuel goes to Jesse's house and Jesse parades all of his sons in front of, or, or Jesse parades all the, his sons in front of Samuel and Samuel, one by one, from the oldest to the youngest, says, no, no, no. God doesn't speak to him in relation to any of these magnificent specimens. And then finally, there's none left. And Samuel, in confusion, turns to Jesse and says, are there any more? And he says, there's one, but he's the least in my estimation. He's out tending the sheep. Samuel says, go get him. David, a ruddy boy, comes running in. Samuel takes the horn of oil, pours it over this young man's head. All of his brothers are mesmerized, confused. Why would you pick the least? Why would you pick this one? Because God said so. David would be ostracized and ridiculed by his older brothers even when he would come to the battlefield as Goliath was paralyzing by fear the armies of Israel as they all held the line in the valley of Elah which belonged to Judah and Succoth, Damon, territory that belonged to God, that God's people were content allowing the enemy to occupy. The story wasn't how to defeat a giant, it was how content God's people are to allow Satan to occupy territory that rightfully belongs to God. No one would move, including the tallest in all of Israel, Saul, 
And this boy comes to deliver food to his brothers, not permitted to be on the lines, not considered worthy enough to fight. As they're all declaring that this specimen in the valley is a giant, he stands nine feet, 10 inches tall, he's a champion. His name is Goliath, of which David never invokes any of those terms. He says he's an uncircumcised Philistine. He's a defiler of the armies of Israel. He's a reproach. And David steps into that battlefield not being able to wear the armor of Saul who was frightened to possess it himself and take on this giant. He would dare to put it on a small child. David would take this armor off of him and say, I can't fight in this. And he would walk out with all that he knew, which was a sling. He gathered five smooth stones, hearing that Goliath had brothers. He approaches Goliath, is not, not a beast who can't talk trash. I remember when I used to watch Mike Tyson, just this beast who had no neck. His head just went into his shoulders. He'd hit you so hard your whole family would feel it. But when he'd open his mouth, it would somehow take away from his strength. Well, I'll tell you what I'm gonna do. I'm gonna... Not Goliath. Goliath had a way of paralyzing with his words, I'm going to remove your head and feed your carcass to the birds of the air. David didn't know how to respond. He said, well, I'm, I'm, I'm going to take your head from you and feed your carcass to the birds of the air. Just repeated. Goliath had had enough and began to run towards David. And as the ground shook, as this beast covered in bronze, he looked like a a leviathan shimmering in the Middle Eastern sun ran towards this little boy. David didn't run away, he ran towards the enemy. I think of all of our heroes that are now zeros. He ran into the fight. We lauded you as heroes and now we fire you. And those who were blessed by your service are cowards and stand not in your defense but are silent as you lose your jobs. I'm sorry. You won't find those cowards here. We love you, we stand with you, and we're proud of you. We fight with you. David ran towards Goliath, lets that stone go, and as we know, he takes that giant down, cuts his head off with the sword of Goliath himself because David had no weapon, inspires them, they push the Philistines out of the territory that belongs to God. David is lauded. He's brought before Saul. Saul's mesmerized by this brave upstart. David is a gifted musician and would soothe the suffering spirit of Saul by singing psalms. And then Saul would have a moment of craziness and, and see this as a challenge to his kingdom, knowing that it had been prophesied there was one who would take his place and he would throw that spear at David and miss him. David would be playing and another spear, boom. Finally, Jonathan, Saul's son, realizes his father is mad and has a heart for David. He loves him as much as a man can love another man and still be a man. And he says, David, you need to go. My dad wants to kill you. David, who had been anointed king, David, who had served his country, David, who had taken on 
a giant that no one else would and did what no one else was willing to do and stood in bravery invoking the three names of God, Jehovah, Lord of hosts, the living God. He stepped forward in that truth. He stepped forward in that knowledge. He stifled the fear by invoking the truth and set his people free. And now, as a reward, he's being hunted and vilified. He's now hiding in the caves of the wilderness in a desert that can get into triple digit temperatures, the lowest point on the earth in many regards, one of, arid and dry. He has no provision, so he rides into a town and he knows that he can find food with the priest. Psalm 34 was written in reflection of what occurred in 1 Samuel 21. It reads, now David came to Nob to Ahimelech the priest and Ahimelech was afraid when he met David and said to him, why are you alone and no one is with you? And David lies to him. That's why David said in that psalm, tell the truth. He sees the damage that lies can do in a family and in other lives. Your sin doesn't just affect you, it affects those you love. So David said to Ahimelech the priest, the king has ordered me on some business and said to me, which is a lie. Do not let anyone know anything about the business on which I send you or what I have commanded you and I have directed my young men to such and such a place. Now therefore have you what have you on hand? Give me five loaves of bread in my hand or whatever can be found. David lies for the sake of a meal. And the priest answered David and said, there is no common bread on hand, but there is holy bread if the young men have at least kept themselves from women. David answered the priest and said to him, truly women have been kept from us about three days since I came out and the vessels of the young men are holy and the bread is in effect common, even though it was consecrated in the vessel this day. So the priest gave them the holy bread, for there was no bread there but the showbread, which had been taken from before the Lord in order to put hot bread in its place on the day when it was taken away. Now a certain man of the servants of Saul was there that day, detained before the Lord, and his name was Doag, the Edomite, the chief of the herdsmen who belonged to Saul. David said to Ahimelech, is there not here on hand a spear or a sword, for I have brought neither my sword nor my weapons with me because the king's business required haste. And so the priest said, the sword of Goliath, the Philistine, whom you killed in the valley of Elah, there it is wrapped in a cloth behind the ephod. If you will take that, take it, for there is no other except that one. You can imagine David holding that sword, reflecting back on God's faithfulness when he called upon the three names of God and refused to invoke the names that others would for that beast in the field. Instead of saying he's a champion, a giant, Goliath by name, he called him a reproach, a defiler of the armies of Israel, an uncircumcised Philistine. He held this reflecting back on that. The visual imagery took him to a place of victory and now he's a liar and he's a fugitive and he's scared. And everyone goes through these seasons we betray one another for the sake of five loaves of bread. I can imagine those January 6th folks, their temptation as the FBI is telling them, infiltrate yourself into a church, 
Find out what they're doing and we'll give you a reduced sentence. There is nothing the enemy won't do in deception to try to manipulate and enslave and prey upon the fears of man. And David is there. David says, there's none like it, give it to me. And David arose and fled that day from before Saul and went to Ashish, the king of Gath. Verse 11, and the servants of Ashish said to him, is this not David, the king of the land? Did they not sing of him to one another in dances, saying, Saul has slain his thousands and David his tens of thousands? Now David took these words to heart and was very much afraid of Ashish, the king of Gath. Abimelech is another translation of the name. So David changed his behavior before them and pretended madness in their hands and scratched on the doors of the gate and let his saliva fall down on his beard. We'll do anything to get the attention off of us so that we don't have to stand upon the remembrance of a man who once was and no longer is. Fear has done away with that courage. Discouraged. Fear is faith in the devil. Fear is trust in the devil. Not fear of the Lord. That, that's, that's, that fear speaks of reverential fear, of respect that you would have for one in authority. I'm speaking of fear of what you're going to lose, fear of what will happen to you, fear of losing your job, fear, fear of losing your salary, fear of your peers mocking you and shaming you. That fear. That fear that paralyzes you from doing what is right. That fear. God never invokes us to such. God inspires us to great things. Amen. David, after feigning madness, therefore departed from there and escaped to the cave of Adullam. And so when his brothers and all his father's house heard it, they went down there to him. And here we have it, everyone who was distressed, everyone who was in debt, and everyone who was discontented gathered to him. So he became the captain over them. And there were about 400 men with him. Indebted, discontented, distressed. Which is where we find all of ourselves today. Inflation running away. Fuel prices. Insane. Somebody told me this was going to happen. I'm trying to remember who that was. <laughs> distressed looking at the World Economic Forum, looking at what they're doing to the truckers, the January 6th folks, our children, the bills that are going before the legislature in California, what they're going to do to homeschooling, what they're going to do to your children, and the fact that there's no parental consent necessary, what they're doing to make this a tyrannical state that you are just subjects of the king in Sacramento. The violation of all these inalienable rights as men and women alike remain silent in most sectors of the state. That distresses us. We find ourselves in debt. How do you get to work for a job that pays minimum wage 
when an hour's worth of work is almost two gallons of gasoline to go to and from that job. We're discontented. We're not content. We're troubled. And why do they gather to David? Because there's hope there. This man is rumored to seek God. This man is different. They gathered to him in a cave. They would leave the comforts of the city to come to a cave in the wilderness of Adullam. And then word gets out while they're in that cave, these 400 distressed, indebted, and discontented. And David not only is running for his life, now he is entrusted and having to care for not just the 400, but their families as well, including his own. The pressures are intense and overwhelming. And to top it off, word is given to him that Doeg told Saul about the priests and Saul's army came and killed them all. Every priest was stabbed. Doeg led the massacre. So David said to Abiathar, I knew that day when Doeg the Edomite was there that he would surely tell Saul, I have caused the death of all the persons of your father's house. Stay with me, do not fear, for he who seeks my life seeks my life, seeks your life, but with me you shall be safe. David comes to a place in his life where he's tired of running and he owns his trash. He cleans up his side of the street, which is the best you can do. I'm responsible for that misery. I take responsibility for that. And from this day forward, I guarantee you I will not run with my tail between my legs. I will stand, I will defend you and I will fight for you, I won't lie. There's no room for that. I will not operate in fear. I will stand. I don't count my life dear to myself. I will no longer kneel before a tyrant. I will stand before God and stand before man. For God has not given me a spirit of fear, but of power, love, and a sound mind. You stay with me, you'll be safe, or I'll die trying. And I'm sorry for what I'm responsible for. Please forgive me. Look, everyone is a train wreck. We've all got a past. Own it, confess it, repent of it, forget it, and move on. The Bible says, forgetting what is behind, striving for what is ahead, taking hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of you. Hey, I get it. You screwed up. Welcome to the world of humanity. God put me here so all of you could go, he's worse than I am. If he can do it, anyone can. Seriously, I win. The Bible says God takes the foolish things of the world, confound the wisdom of the wise. I'm not here because I'm more moral than you. I told you that story. I remember one time I'm in the pulpit struggling with a personal sin that was so overwhelming. And I'm thinking to myself, Lord, if this is what I'm dealing with, I can't imagine what the congregation's dealing with. God humbled me and inspired me all at the same time. He said, no, Rob, you're the worst. which comforted me, inspired me, because his kindness led me to repentance. And I can truly say as I stand before you, if he can take this broken vessel and use it for any type of good, he is a God of miracles. I'm not brave. You are. 
We serve a mighty God. And David owned it. That's the best we can do. I'm never afraid to say I'm wrong and I'm sorry. I always find freedom in that. The reason why you can't is because of pride. Pride is an awful thing. Pride is, pride's a cover. Humble yourself in the sight of the Lord. He'll lift you up. You don't have to pretend to be anything you're not. It's one of the most freeing things in ministry. I never wanted to be anything that I wasn't because I cannot keep those plates spinning. Anyone who spends time with me goes, yeah, it is a miracle you're a pastor. <laughs> and and I, I, there's even a part of my flesh that wants to justify, I'm not that bad at what I'm saying. No, I, I'm capable of really, I can do it all. I, I hey. And by the way, if you're struggling with that, what do you want me to lie? I mean, it's not like I relish sin. It's not like I, 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 I stand and, and, and glorify it. But I struggle with it just as much as you do. My other one is too, and, and I've never felt this in the church because I've said it all along. Don't, and I told the Lord this, I'm not going in the ministry if my kids are gonna be a sacrificial lamb and end up like every other pastor's kid. Take me out. And the Lord said, just tell the congregation that. Tell them how rotten your kids are. <laughs> so that they don't put expectations. Well, Pastor McCoy's children wouldn't do that. No, they would. No, they would. Quit lying to your children. Some of you are like, oh, that's awful. <laughs> We're all beggars showing the other beggars where the food is. The only good thing in Rob McCoy's Jesus. Anytime I take the reins, find a new church. Now, for 21 years, he's managed to keep my hands off that. God's good. Don't fear man, fear God, reverential fear. David owned it. David, they told David saying, look, the Philistines are fighting against Keilah and they're robbing the threshing floors. Therefore, David inquired of the Lord. First thing he does, he doesn't run in fear, he goes to God. He says, God, shall I go and attack these Philistines? And the Lord said to David, go and attack the Philistines and save Keilah. David's men said to him, look, we're afraid here in Judah. How much more then if we go to Keilah against the armies of the Philistines? And David inquired of the Lord once again. He wasn't afraid to be criticized by his men. He said, oh, you know what? I'll go ask again. Tyrants don't like to be challenged. David just went to the why and what he does. Lord, they wanted me to ask you again. Okay, I thought so. So David saves the citizens of Keilah. The men not only fight Saul and the Philistines and defend a two-fronted war and save the citizens of Keilah, but then David inquires of the Lord at the conclusion of the battle. He says to God, he says, Lord, will the men of Keilah deliver me into Saul's hand? Will Saul come down as your servant has heard? O Lord God of Israel, I pray, tell your servant. And the Lord said, Saul will come down. Now David asked the Lord two questions. The first one was, will the citizens betray me? And the second question is, will Saul come down? God only answers one question. He only gives one answer to two questions. 
He says, Saul will come down. David, thinking God was hard of hearing, repeated himself. Verse 12. Will the men of Keilah deliver me and my men into the hands of Saul? You wonder why God didn't answer him. And the Lord said, hesitantly, they will deliver you. So David and his men, about 600, arose and departed from Keilah and went wherever they could go. And then it was told Saul that David had escaped from Keilah, so he halted the expedition. David was betrayed by the same people he saved. That's how Mark Ibrahim probably feels, yeah? That's how our nurses and doctors feel, our police officers, our firefighters. Betrayed by the ones that they saved. Hero to zero. What did David do? He just rode out of town. How do you do that? 21 years I've served with these pastors. I love them. Silent during our struggle, save but two. How do you avoid bitterness and make it such that your ego is bruised? How do you contend for truth and not ruin a friendship? How do you love and contend against ideology that seeks to enslave with brothers who you believe to be deceived? pray you ask the Lord for wisdom you seek the counsel of others you wait upon him the things that we've done over the years we've served them I feel, in a sense, um, betrayed. But even seeing that, I'm not embittered. I still deeply love them. I miss them. How could David save these people and ride out of town and not kill them? You ungrateful human beings. How, how can our firefighters who have lost their jobs, betrayed by the ones that they saved, maintain a heart of love to the community? Our sheriffs, our doctors, our scientists, our nurses, our military personnel. How? They're brave. And the ones that have betrayed are wusses. How do you not be bitter? Because God must be the why in what you do. People are not the enemy. 
the opportunity for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He loved us when we were enemies of the cross. He loved us with an everlasting love where every drop of blood that was contained in his body was poured out to be efficacious to cover the multitude of our sins and they are many. I just need to look in a mirror and I know who Rob McCoy is without Jesus. God, forgive me. Let me love them as you have loved me. But ingratitude is painful and that's why God hesitated to answer David when he asked two questions and he only gave him one answer. In the anchored reading we're going through Luke, we'll come across 17 shortly. Now it happened as Jesus went to Jerusalem that he passed through the midst of Samaria and Galilee. Then as he entered a certain village there met him 10 men who were lepers and stood afar off and they lifted up their voices and said, Jesus, master, have mercy on us. So he saw them and he said to them, go show yourselves to the priest. And so it was that they went and they were cleansed. And one of them, when he saw that he was healed, returned with a loud voice and glorified God and fell down on his face at his feet, giving him thanks. And he was a Samaritan. And Jesus answered and said, were there not 10 cleansed? But where are the other nine were there not any found to return to give glory to God except this foreigner? And he said to him, Arise, go your way, your faith has made you well. Jesus understood ingratitude of man. He keeps our heart beating and our lungs moving every day of our life. He provides rain upon the fields, snow in the mountains, crops that grow, miracles that occur so that your bellies are full. He proclaims liberty to set the captives free. He empowers men and women to stand on your behalf. And there's no gratitude. There's entitlement. There's betrayal. Even his disciples betrayed him on the night he was crucified. When the shepherd is struck, the sheep will scatter. We're all capable of that but you're new creatures in Christ and forget what is behind. A heart of thankfulness is a heart of empowerment and it's a heart of courage. Jesus said, blessed are you when they revile and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. Matthew 5. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad. Not just glad, exceedingly glad. That's a good one where you like white suit and a comb over. Be exceedingly glad. <laughs> Praise God. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad. For great is your reward when you go back to work on Monday? No. For great is your reward when you have stood in the gap during a pandemic and you have incurred this virus and survived it and built the antibodies and now they want to inject you as your colleagues have suffered. 
and you reject it and they fire you, rejoice and be exceedingly glad when they divide you with medical apartheid. They declare whether you're essential or non-essential, rejoice and be exceedingly glad. For great is your reward in heaven. You'll get nothing here. It's there. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. And this day we read the psalm of one of those prophets. The psalm of sweetness of a man who knew his sin and had been delivered and saved a man who ran in cowardice and was empowered, who was restored and forged in a fire that would cause him to be the greatest king in the history of Israel. And those 400 indebted, distressed, and discontented individuals gathered that would be the administration of that kingdom. The why and what we do is Jesus. Our reward awaits us in heaven. People are not the enemy, they're the opportunity. Jesus is brave. His spirit has empowered you. You're no longer afraid. Abide in him, he'll abide in you. Love your enemies, do good to those who spitefully use you. Kindness will lead them to repentance. Don't grow weary in well-doing. Be used to ingratitude. The only one you're to please is the Lord and the Lord himself. Stand for truth. Don't waver. And above all, don't be a wussy. In Jesus' name, amen. <laughs> How do you end a sermon like that one? Yeah. I love you guys. Let's, amen. Let's welcome the worship team up and we'll close with a song. Let me pray for you. Lord, I thank you for this precious body of believers. Lord, one day, probably sooner than later when I'm much older and much grayer, I will recount to the children in my presence that you have blessed me with, that I had the great privilege to serve with men and women of courage. I was privileged to pastor a church of heroes and heroines. Thank you, God, for those of us who have yet to realize who we are in you Today that fear lifts, you're a child of the king and you are more than a conqueror. God has not given you a spirit of fear and Psalm 34 is yours, now live it. You are brave and the why and what you do is Jesus. There's no bitterness. We ask all this Lord in the, by the power of your spirit in your matchless mighty name of truth, the savior of the world. Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Let's stand and worship the Lord.